0: Love all it! All right. welcome back to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast. This is Darren Mitchell, and another very special guest today, all the way from Arizona. I nearly said Phoenix, Arizona, but it's near Phoenix, Arizona. Mr. Nick Capozzi, how are you, my friend?
1: I'm fantastic. It's like, well, you're in Melbourne, right? So what's a yeah. what's a suburb of Melbourne?
0: Uh, well, well, Adelaide. Adelaide's in South Australia, so it's about eight hours drive west of oh, Melbourne. Shoot.
1: Way wrong. Um, okay.
0: What's what's the suburb of Melbourne? Essendon.
1: Essendon, go bombers!
0: <laughs> oh, you got a bit of knowledge about AFL, my friend.
1: I played rugby in Canada with a guy. I won't drop his name because I've looked him up. I can't find it, but it was so long ago. Um, but he, I played rugby with him when I was 15 years old in Canada. He was an exchange student, and he wound up going to play in the AFL for North Melbourne. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's that's my connection to Aussie Rules football.
0: Nice, and as a um, as a uh, rugby fan, and I guess as mm-hmm. a as a Northern Hemisphereian, do you get mm-hmm. to see much of the AFL game on uh, on various platforms?
1: Zero. I, you know, occasionally <laughs> I'll, I'll watch some highlights, or something across come across on my social media. Even rugby, you know, rugby union is tough to. Never mind rugby league uh, is tough to to get up here. So when I when I get a chance to watch it, I'm always I'm always enthralled.
0: It's fascinating because when you when I talk to Americans and people outside of Australia and they look at the game for the first time, they go nuts thinking, yeah, how do people do that, right? It's because you yeah. look at the American gridiron game and there's so much padding and it's a very high impact game, but AFL tends to be more of a 360 degree uh, game, which is you've got to be always on the lookout.
1: Well, not only that, but when I played rugby union, I mean, people always say, "How do you do that without equipment and a helmet and padding?" It's so dangerous. I say, it's not dangerous. We tackle properly. We don't use the helmet as a weapon. <laughs> right. And then you're you're picking the guy up off the ground after you tackle him because you're gonna have a pint with them of Victoria Bitter at the uh, <laughs> at the end of the match, right?
0: <laughs> this is even dropping the Victorian Bitter, the Melbourne the Melbourne staple of beer, mind you. If you've actually if you're a beer connoisseur, and hopefully there's people listening to this who are not the connoisseur of Vic Bitter.
1: It's not the best beer. In fact, it's, yeah, it's better than Foster's. That's what we know on this side is, of the world.
0: It is better than Foster's, but uh, but I'm a bit of a beer snob, so I'm off. I've gone to the craft beers now, so um, I'm not a don't like because a big bitter for me gives gives me headaches. So I can't I can't drink that. So oh, okay, you got to have a nice beer. Hey, but we digress. We're here. We're not here to talk about beer, and we're certainly not here to talk about rugby. We're here to talk about sales, and you've got a fascinating background, and love to delve into into this, and as we talked about before we press record, uh, we don't know where this is going to go, and it could go anywhere, and I'm okay with that, and hopefully the listeners are okay with that, but um, you've got three roles at the moment. One is uh, Chief Storyteller or Head of Storytelling at DemoStack. You're the co-founder of Social Social, and you're also the founder of Sales Pitching, so I'm sure there's a big connection with all three of those, but I'd love, I'd love for you, if you can, Nick, just to give us a bit of a, I guess, a background in terms of um, what you've done and how you've ended up doing what you're doing today, because it's, it's for me, it's a fascinating story.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, I knew as a kid growing up in Montreal, Canada, that I wanted to work in radio. Like, I remember eight years old, I wanted to be that guy in the radio. So everything I did was to get me to college in Toronto for radio broadcasting. And I went through, I worked in radio and TV for about five years. And one day I was at a party. And after a few pints of VB, someone said to me, hey, can you do that radio thing on a stage? And I said, sure. Next thing I know, I stepped onto a cruise ship in Miami and spent about 10 years living at sea, pitching high-end luxury duty-free, and then helping sell the high-end luxury duty-free. So it was a crazy industry, big number. People are shocked at how big it was. But duty-free is a real thing. And people would come and cruise. And I'd have people walk on a ship and say, hey, I'm looking for these four watches. If you can source them duty-free in the Caribbean, I'll buy all four this week. So it was a really interesting, um, you know, sales process, very B2C. I mean, the most B2C because we're on vacation, right? Yeah. And um, I worked my way up. I became a VP. I worked for companies like Disney and Royal Caribbean. And then um, I got out right before COVID. I was looking to do something different. Took a VP of sales job in in Phoenix, where I live now which was, um, a very, uh, B2B was my first time really selling B2B and it was interesting, but I I was getting stuck in dashboards and I said, there's gotta be more. So I didn't have a plan. So two years ago I quit without a plan mid COVID six months in. And I said, I'm just gonna start creating content. So I started creating content without a plan and putting it on LinkedIn, but it was about what I knew, which was Mm -hmm. sales presentation skills and, and, you know, talking from a stage, engaging an audience.
0: Yeah.
1: And, um, uh, I just became a consultant. I started getting calls from sales leaders saying, "Hey, can you sit in on my demos?" And now that I fully understand demos, I realize I was—I was, frankly, you know, I don't know if I would—if I knew then what I know now, I would have felt felt a little fraudulent, frankly. But I really focus on the engaging aspect of it and keep, you know, getting people to turn the cameras on and really focus on what was happening and it just became a business. And then a few months, well, about almost a year ago, actually, I put a post up and I said, this is really great. I'm really fortunate that over 18 months, I built a little consultancy just by using content, but I want to do what I did in cruise, which is a mix of partnerships, content and events. What does that look like? And lo and behold, I started working with DemoStack. And uh, real quick, had a storytelling at DemoStack. So what that is, is uh, I'm the marketing evangelist. So I create content. I'm visible. I go to events. I do webinars. And I teach people storytelling skills and discovery skills, things that are really pertinent to a pre-seller, a pre-sales engineer, um, but frankly, account executives as well uh social social real quick is a social uh media networking uh community that i built with a couple other people and that was because we couldn't find answers to algorithms and 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 process you know we create all this great content but how do you actually deploy it and then sales pitching was my was my business that i found that out of cruise but what's interesting now i realize it's a terrible name for a company because we don't pitch anymore we do discovery right Taryn? <laughs> so that's uh <laughs> that's great too. t- you- took discovery about three minutes solving yeah, exactly. So it took about three minutes, but that's my three titles. There you go. That's how, and that's how it all kind of works together. So
0: fascinating. And what I love about that is the like the cruise ship uh, story, selling selling watches to people on holiday. And talk to me about that because from and maybe it's just my frame of reference. Somebody going on holiday probably not necessarily in a buying cycle. And we talk about buying cycles in the business, the business space a lot. Um. Did you find that the skill set you developed and you, and you talk a lot about storytelling in that? Mm-hmm. that enhanced your ability to create, I guess friction within the marketplace to the point where they they wanted to purchase a, a watch or they needed, they found they had a need. and how does that now now relate to what you do now in terms of working f- with businesses?:
1: So the beautiful thing about luxury goods was they never had a need, so I had to develop a need. And then what was happening was we were essentially a promotion company. So we are promoting these brands that sold duty-free, let's say in the Caribbean. So Cartier, Chopard, Hublot, Tech Hoyer. But if I'm representing in one hour presentation, 15 different Swiss watch houses, how do I make them each really distinct? I can yeah. take their marketing collateral, but it's not really telling the story. So I found I would get a lot of success by digging into the history of that house, right? Ah. Raymond Weil is still the only independent family-owned Swiss watch manufacturer in the world, right? That That's interesting. Where does that lead to? So that's where the storytelling came in, in terms of actually getting engagement. And you and, know, and I'll talk as a Canadian who was selling now to Americans. It took me about a year to realize that culturally Americans wanted to be marketed to and wanted to be sold to. And I come from a Canadian background, which is more similar to British and Australian. In that, we don't do that, and and we don't wear <laughs> fancy fancy watches in Australia. And a diamond, I've oh, my, fifteen thousand dollars for a diamond? I'll spend fifteen hundred dollars, maybe. Yeah. So, but Americans wanted to buy that, and and there's something to jewelry and watches and and you know swaggy things in the American culture. So they would come on ready to buy. That was the that first was thing good. that blew my mind, but what about the other percentage of people to my quota that weren't thinking that? Right. So that's where storytelling, what are you celebrating? Our discovery was, is it your anniversary? Is it your wedding? Did you just graduate from college? What are you celebrating? Um, So that was the type of discovery we would do. And they would look at each other and say, you know what? We have been married 30 years. You know what? I do deserve a nice watch. (laughs) (laughs) And so they would figure it out themselves. But as, as a Canadian, I was never a forceful north american on them yeah what i would do is i would just get excited first of all duty free was a real thing right so linen example for i'm wearing this t-shirt if this t-shirt costs a dollar when it's made in china the minute it comes into the harbor in los angeles now it's a dollar and 30 cents right there's a 30 percent duty i'm making that up for linen but that's a real thing so it was like okay this is Mm -hmm. real so let's look at it. And then, wow, well, that's interesting. Never thought of duty-free. I can get a real deal here. And then it was like, well, now let's get you excited about the products. And that's what we did. We would pitch like 60 products in 60 minutes.
0: Wow. And how much of that was you had a captive audience where on a ship, they can't
1: escape? So it wasn't. And in <laughs> fact, that was the challenge because- I there was a direct correlation it, it was inbound marketing there was a direct correlation between how many people I got to my presentation and my actual number I mean if I had 100 people versus 120
0: yeah
1: I knew I could tell the difference immediately it didn't matter the size of the crowd it was a volume play So the biggest, you know, and if you're coming from, let's say, New York City in the middle of January to Miami and you're getting excited about your cruise, you're not thinking about shopping duty-free. You're thinking about the sun and, you know, the casino and the spa, the sexy departments. Duty-free wasn't sexy. Yeah. So I had to get them on the first sea day when the sun's out down into the dark theater at noon at lunchtime when the first major buffet is happening. So these were all the things I was fighting. It was not a captive audience. I had to pull. And what's interesting, what I realized now, what I was doing back then was I was using content to drive people. So most people would get 100, 120, 140 people. I would get 500. And the reason I did, the way that I did it was in 2000, dating myself a little bit, but if you cruised on rural Caribbean in 2000, you had three television channels. You had CNN, ESPN de Portes, which was soccer in Spanish, which was not appealing to an American audience. And you had this luxury good channel where these brands were paying to basically have a real plate promoting them. Why okay. well, is the radio guy took my camcorder down and I said, I'm going to hijack this channel. And I did. And what I did was I now filled, I used content to get people excited about duty-free come to the presentation and that's the only thing we did. So I had a, so I guess I did have a captive audience in that Americans are very culturally used to having a television on. Yeah. And when you were limited in what was available, the guy who was talking about the islands we're going to go to and what you need and hey, don't forget shop duty free suddenly became the 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 north star to them for that day on the cruise.
0: So instead of it being maybe I'm here to I'm here to follow the sun, I'm here to have a great holiday, I'm here to relax. You you put the the duty free top of mind, so it was almost frame of reference So they had they had to at least explore it. So there was a level of curiosity they they were that got created based on what you did.
1: I would have people. I had to be so delicate about this. Trying to return their shore excursions because now they wanted to shop in Saint Thomas <laughs> and didn't want to go on the fishing excursion anymore. I mean, that's how effective it was, but it was just, again, it was an obvious thing. And I think sometimes as sales leaders and I was a sales leader, I I had hundreds of people under me at, at my Zenith when I was on cruise ships. I think we forget sometimes that, um, Shit, I lost my train of thought. I hope you edit this. Now. <laughs> what, the fuck? what was I saying Mate, right this before? Is, that? This, is
0: why, this is why we uh, we do this because we don't know where it's going to go. And that's that's why it's such an authentic thing. And imagine, hey, did that ever happen when you're in the middle of a pitch?
1: 100% <laughs> all the time, <laughs> right? I, I do so, this all
0: the time, right? I, I facilitate and coach and, and mentor and, and I run workshops. And often in the middle of a conversation, there'll be something I've got in the, just there that I'm about mm. to share. And when I'm about to share it, it's gone right the classic awesome. brain fart right no idea what i'm about to talk about <laughs> but let's just utilize it
1: oh <laughs> all right beautiful so i don't remember where i was i remember we were talking about driving traffic to the uh to the event and then getting well you had you had hundreds
0: then- of hundreds of salespeople at your zenith and yep there was uh there was something there was something absolutely it was gold you're about to share absolute
1: gold it had to do with sales leadership it's the one piece I'm missing from 90 seconds ago but here we are um but what was interesting was so this was interesting I would pull people sales enablement and sales training became so critical to us and this was not something that we necessarily did well as companies back then because it was a very our retention was not high it was good luck you're on a ship usually transition from another department. I'm a waiter from Melbourne. Hey, I want to get on stage and start presenting this duty free. Um, so really getting people comfortable on stage and then getting them out there and training them on the scripting. And one thing that I would, I would hammer home was you need to know your scripts. You need to know the 60 minutes up, down, left, right. Like you know, your national anthem, because at that point, when you haven't committed so much to memory, then you can add theater to what you're doing right because yeah. so much of what i did was i have these 500 people in the audience and i'm watching their body language to what i'm saying to when i'm pausing yeah. right and the this and part of the reason that all happened was the scariest thing again i'm competing against the sun and and lunch is seeing 2 3 10 15 of those people leave in the first 5 minutes yeah. so everything i did was about creating engagement and excitement around a true thing which was the duty free um, and getting them excited to get out there and and take advantage of that, right? Yes. So
0: it's uh, it's fascinating. And I'm interested in your in your on your take on this because um, when I when I run sales training or I run pitching or presentation skills, a lot of people try to memorize their mm. I guess their speech. And you, you talk about scripting. So i will be interested in your perspective on this because my my view is you need to know your content, mm. but not your content that it's a rote content. So you're just, you're just memorizing it like lines because when it comes across, it sounds like, and I make the distinction between an A-grade actor and a B-grade actor. You watch a B-grade actor in a B-grade movie, it sounds like they're just reciting lines, but you watch an A-grade actor in a blockbuster movie, they know their lines, but they've got, as you as you talk about, they've got the gravitas, they've got the charisma. Exactly. They, 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 can, they can say that and they can in, utilize whatever's happening on the spot and still deliver their content within the time frame. So how much of how much of that? Because I want to pivot this to what it, what it means for sales leaders and salespeople today in in you know dealing with SaaS or dealing with big organisations. Um, if you can do this with a watch, you should be able to do this with anything, right? But what's your Absolutely. perspective on on that in terms of learning the script, but not being completely wedded to what you say, but more about how you deliver it.
1: So first of all, you nailed it. And what I would get them to do was how they wrote their scripts out. So when we write something, it's a very different language than when we speak it. So what I would get them to do, I mean, now we have dictation technology, word and, and pages all has a dictate button, but we didn't have it back then. And I would have them talk out how they wanted to present. And that way, the spoken word was, it came across much more casual than something scripted. Yeah. Right. So. But if you had it memorized so well, and again, I use the national anthem, if I drop one phrase from the Australian national anthem, you can pick it up from there, right? So if you're not thinking about what's coming next, and it just comes out naturally, then you can do things like. Watch, watch your prospects body language. Mm. You can watch, you know, are they reacting to you? You can add your own body language to it. So much of what we do is based around body language. So much about engagement is around yeah. body language. Yeah. So if I'm going to script a 27 second cold call script, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk that out. I'm not going to write it out. I'm going to spoke it to be spoken, not spoken to be read. Yeah. Yeah. Love it.
0: Love it. And the other part of that is, is as you mentioned, the body language part. Because if you've got people uh, leaving in the first five minutes, you're thinking, yeah. oh oh <laughs> am, am, am I on? am I not? What's going on? have I got the wrong audience? But the other, the other part I wanted to touch on is the product itself. Yeah. Now I'm I'm curious about this because there are so and t- certainly in Australia, there are so many sales people and sales leaders who work for organizations or who represent products who make it all about the product. Who love talking about the product, and they think this is. And you look, you got to believe in your product, and I get that. But uh, when it comes to selling watches, for example, given that you had so many different brands, um, I want to bring in the, the, I guess the, the power of storytelling on this. How much of the emphasis was on the product, either from um, you guys in terms of having to sell those, or in fact the manufacturers or the or the brands having to get you to be specific on the elements of the product and make sure you actually talk about this feature and that benefit, et cetera, et cetera. So how so they would they that?
1: They would focus on that unless we were doing well, then they didn't care. They didn't uh-huh. care if they paid for 80 seconds and they got eight, as long as we were delivering the results. Right. So I think that's an interesting point. And I think what happens is, is, and I'll put this from a storytelling point of view, it's the hero's journey. Who's the hero of the story when you're doing a presentation or giving a demo? The reality is we make it about ourselves. I sit in on demos all day. It's about I, we, our solution. But if you've done really great discovery, which one thing I realized about as important, if not more important than telling a great story in a presentation or a demo is doing the discovery so you can frame and lead the breadcrumbs. Yeah. So your prospects following you. Um, but that's the mistake we make. And, and that just doesn't apply to this. I see this in every part of the sales process, right? From, from pre-sales to customer success, it's about us and it's about our solution. Mm-hmm. But if you make it about them and their pain point, they can feel themselves in the story. And what you're trying to do with a great story is pull the person on the other end into the theater of what you're doing because as soon as they get on stage with you they're much more closer to buying because they're going to be more excited more likely to become a champion but also this is really important when you tell a great story and you've laid it out so that they feel that they're the champion of it they're going to better retell that story to other stakeholders in their organization right If, if i just give them a piece of data they're not going to remember that. Even if I give them a beautiful PDF handout, follow up, leave behind after, they're not going to remember that. But if I told a great story, they're going to go and be able to retell that story, just like we've done as humans throughout history.
0: And especially if, Nick, as you say, you put the them in the story as the hero, because all of us are on a hero's journey, right? Yep. Now, many of us are still in the ordinary world, but a lot of us are making the transition and some lucky ones are in the, the new world, right? With the elixir coming back to the old world. Um, that's, that's such such an important component because I see this all the time. Um, companies and representatives of companies that have a great product, it might be one of the best best in market, they might have the best network or the best you know fill in the blank here and they think that the features are going to sell the customer they think I'll just leave them with that PDF or we'll do that demo and the demo will sell that sell the product, right? And I worked for a big organisation here in uh, in Australia. I won't mention the name, but I'll give you the initials. It was Telstra and um, big telco company. And, and, and unfortunately and interestingly, a lot of people in the marketing department when I was there thought that they didn't need salespeople because they thought that we had the best marketing collateral, the best products and the best networks, and therefore companies and organisations and people should be lining up around the door to knock down the doors to try and buy a product. It was that good. It didn't work, right? We had to have salespeople who could tell a story and who could actually get a level of excitement. So that the point, the point where the customer wanted to take action because they needed to take action because they had a problem they needed to have solved. Absolutely. It was that.
1: <laughs> and the, the other side effect of getting people excited is you're going to get better deal velocity through your through your whole sales process, right? Yeah. And and people forget that as well. They're like, How do I how do I speed it up? How do I speed it up? Tell yeah. a great story.
0: Or any, as you say, if you get that person involved in the story, they become the internal champion, the internal advocate, and they do the selling for you. So you've now leveraged yourself. Now with that, love to, love to get a sense of, um, I'm just going to put it out there. I'm going to say you're an expert in storytelling. Okay.
1: Debatable, but uh, okay, let's go with it.
0: <laughs> well, if you've sold so many, uh, so many watches and you've done the old 10,000 hours stuff. So that's, yep. that's uh, that's an awesome thing. I love from your perspective, because this is going to be really pertinent for anybody listening who is currently either in a sales leadership role, who is trying to extract more potential out of their team, and they know they've got more potential, they just can't sort of get the last percentage points, but also individual contributors who might be struggling, who have a target that seems to be within reach, but they just can't quite get there, and they can't, they can't find what the gap is, or how to close the gap. The importance of storytelling, because I can tell you, and you probably see this as well, there are many people out there, and I would say the vast majority, who do not use storytelling, who do not use storytelling in their sales process, right? So from your perspective, and based on your all the thousands of hours that you've done and the success you've had, from your perspective, what are the key components to a good story that enables a salesperson or a sales leader to be able to tap into?
1: I'll give you one. And I will hang my hat on this because I think it's so critical. So especially if you're selling a technical product, we talk very technical. Forget the personas. Forget if I'm positioning to a CFO versus a CMO. Our stories are always very technical. We, you just mentioned features and benefits. That's technical. Yeah. You think of vivid imagery. If you think of if you're reading a great novel What are the words that are coming up in those paragraphs? It's not the same words, not technical words. It's painting a picture for you, right? Because that's what a book has to do, right? To get you into that story. It has to make you feel like you're in it. So I'll give you a great example. What I I encourage people to do is go for a walk at the end of your day today. Walk through your neighborhood. And what do you see? I see a tree. Great. What kind of tree is it? What does the bark look like? What's the color of the bark? Is it a yellow or is it a canary yellow? Or is it, you know... What does, is the bark peeling off? Is it, do you have sap coming out? And just look at that tree. What are the leaves like? Are you in Florida and it's a waxy wide leaf or are you in Colorado and it's, it's dry and brittle. Okay. And what does that look like? And colors and senses and tastes, you know, that's what you're trying to do is you're literally trying to key in on someone's palate, literally and figuratively. And I think if you approach it of how do I how do I really immerse someone, the approach should be tell a great story, but tell it with vivid imagery. So if they're on another screen and they're not really paying attention, they're more likely to, to come into what you're doing. And I discovered this because when I first started consulting on demos, what was happening was I had all these screens off, right? Yeah. COVID had just happened. Everyone had a camera off where they're on two screens and they're not paying attention to you because they're in an Excel spreadsheet while they're talking to you. And I found that the more I could really create imagery, the more I saw them slowly pivoting to me, which then became, you know, like I said, what I, what I hang my hat on. So think about it that way. Think about how can I literally not figuratively, literally paint a picture in their mind Mm -hmm. and vivid imagery. What are the words you're using Um, And the best way to to do, if you're already telling stories, go back through gong or chorus or whatever conversation intelligence software you're using and and rewatch yourself. No one wants to do that, but rewatch yourself and then start looking for words that you keep repeating. Right. That's another thing we do is that if everything is amazing and exciting, then nothing is amazing and exciting. So I'll literally, as I'm scripting, I'll go through thesaurus.com and I'll start looking for alternative words that kind of flow. And I am not a writer. The funny thing is, I'm English is kind of my first language. I grew up in a, in a French part of Canada. Um, And I was, I'm, I'm still not a strong writer. Writing is not my strength. So I had to, you know, survive and then, and then thrive off telling stories and getting people, you know, into that imagery I found was the most effective way to do that.
0: Yeah. Love it. Cause um, I'm just thinking of the, some of the demos that I've witnessed or some of the pictures that I've witnessed and you're so correct, and it's all about it's all about the product. It's all about the the features, and and sometimes people are stuck for words. They don't know how to describe it. They don't know, and it's almost like they don't believe in the product, but they've got to try and fake it to the to the point where they believe it and hope that the customer will right. catch on to something. So there's right. not there's no intention. How much of it do you think is when you're talking to people and this, when you're when you're looking at the demos that people are doing. How much of it is, I guess, a level of anxiety because they're so used to talking features and how much of this is jumping completely out of their comfort zone where they're not used to telling stories. They think, hang on, stories are for kids, stories are for kindergarten, stories are for elementary school, stories are not for adults. We're educated here, right? So I can't possibly sit in front of a CMO or a CFO or a CEO and tell a story about bark on trees. They'll they'll laugh at me.
1: Yeah. So I'm not telling you to talk about bar countries, but let's, uh, let's zoom back. I'll give you a really easy way to look at this. Think about a case study, right? What was Mary's problem before my product? What was the solution? How did Mary implement it? And then how did Mary become successful with it? Mm -hmm. Right? So if Mary's a CFO and I'm pitching an accounting product to another CFO, that's a tie that I can bind. Right. And I think that's the best way to do is just think of your case studies And that's another thing I find really interesting is I look at a lot of companies and and if they have case studies, are they well done? I don't know. Now, I'm going to pivot a little bit off something you said, and sales leaders might not like this, but one thing I would tell my sellers underneath me is don't count on me to train you. Now, I was constantly training them, Mm -hmm. but I would force them to shine the light on themselves and really self-evaluate. So, you know, I mentioned watching recordings of your calls and, and I worked with a fintech company. We can't record these calls, no problem. I would have an iPhone off to the side recording myself so yeah, that I could, yeah. you know, fully, fully embrace that. And the reason people don't do this is um, They don't want to watch themselves the first time it's awful, but then the second time it's 10% less awful the next time 20% less awful and you can really course correct you can really find those crutch words those negative words, the things that you're saying oh you know what I said that and it's two demos in a row I said that I really got to get that out of me. So I would, I would, and I had to do it, not by choice. I had to learn this because I would have a seller off the coast of Japan who's trying to FedEx me a VHS tape. Well, 10 days later, it's there. So I would get them to watch the tapes on board the ship themselves, rewatch it, and then email me, hey, here's what I saw. Here's what I learned. And then what I would do, and this is something that I I have also really uh, gone with over the years. In a presentation, I'm not going to give them 20 things to correct. Here's three things for this round. Yeah. Work on this, work on this, work on this. I don't want to see those three things in your next presentation. Right. And then I would watch the next presentation and see if they corrected those things. Um, but you know, self-there's so much, so much like this podcast, there's so much out there for sellers and sales leaders to Mm. to improve themselves and their skill set today. I mean, LinkedIn is 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 a mecca for this. So Um, again, you know, I I still think you should listen to your sales leader, obviously, but I would always encourage my people. Don't just listen to me. Right. Are you motivated in your own career? Mm. Do you actually want this? Right. And that was also a great indicator of how motivated they were. Cause we can look at pipeline, but what, if I would give them a task that would take an hour of work throughout a week that, you know, and I wasn't, I'm not coming back. I'm not pinging them. I'm not poking them to remind them to do it, but would they do it? Yeah. Would they do it?
0: And that's the thing that, that comes down to motivation as to why why they do what they do and why they've chosen to work in this organization and why they've chosen to work in this particular role, right? And Absolutely. And I, I often talk to, to sales leaders where, and I, I suffered from this when I first became a sales leader and that I created a an environment of codependency where I was res- responsible for solving all the problems. Uh, I was responsible for doing all the, the I guess, the... Um, Uh, mediation issues and fixing the fixing the issues and doing the training and sometimes doing the calls, sometimes closing the deals, doing everything. So, um, but what I did is I nearly burnt myself out in 90 days because the team would come to me with all the problems. And I thought the best way to build trust and respect was to solve all the problems for them, but it wasn't helping them until I realized until I had a mentor that said, Hey, you're going to go nuts if you keep doing this. Right. Get them to sell, as you say, get them to self-correct, get them to self-analyze, get them to think about one or two things they can focus on before they come to you. And then when they do come to you, your quality of the conversation is going to be higher.
1: Absolutely. It, it, it's so effective, but I talk to sales leaders all the time who don't do that. They're yeah. like, yeah, but I am responsible for that number. Great. Right. Just think think of you're giving your employee a plan, but just a different plan than maybe what you're accustomed to. Yeah. And again, yeah. these are I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just telling you, these are things that I was forced to learn in a very unique sales cycle. And now that I'm in the B2B space, which is so process driven, yeah. um, you know, those same things apply.
0: So I'd love to know. If- with your transition into um, demo stack and, and now mm-hmm. working a lot in the B2B space and and looking at demos and watching sales people and sales leaders do their thing what's the appetite or what's the yeah what's the appetite in terms of storytelling do you have do you have a lot of um, resistance has there been a lot of resistance in terms of this and what's if there has what's been some of the i guess key strategies to start break down breaking down that resistance
1: so I have had no resistance. And that is, <laughs> that's what caught me off guard because what's interesting. So the pre-sales community, so sales engineers, solutions, consultant, that kind of space is, is where we sell into. So yeah. DemoStack clones the front end of your product in a minute so that you can give custom tailored demos like that. And I would go into these rooms to these, these big companies and give workshops on behalf of demo stack in front of 30, 40, 50 sales engineers. And I would ask them, right, what do you need help with storytelling? Yeah. They came to me. I, I, said I need help. storytelling. They said storytelling. Interesting. So these are very forward thinking, you know, American companies. Yeah. Um, what's the latest and greatest, but they self-diagnosed. Their two biggest issues were great discovery and storytelling. And the more I've gotten into that, and I've, I've now met sales engineering leaders and consultants, and I've had these discussions, it's the same thing. Mm. So at least in that space, they acknowledge that that's an issue. Um, If you get into the account executive or or your sales representative level, that's where it might change a little bit. Um, But again, do you have, if I have someone who's very extroverted, I definitely would actually, so you, one would normally assume that the extroverted person would be the great storyteller, but it's the introvert who's better at crossing T's and dotting I's and actually following up that they were the ones who could benefit more from that. Yeah. So you were taking someone who had a different, two different skill sets, but the introvert realized that if they could get better at some of that charismatic type things, like telling a great story, that yeah. they could be more successful. Yeah. And you know, a lot of these technical sellers are very technical, and them realizing that storytelling and telling a better story and and really getting the prospect to sit in the chair next to them, the fact that they realized that before I walked into the room. I never I've never had to convince anyone that telling a great story is important. Now, maybe again it's a cultural thing. I'm talking to mostly Americans and the West Coast. Um, but yeah, not they were ready for it and and willing.
0: They're ready to buy watches, my friend.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's oh. uh that's that's fascinating because I, I know in Australia there's there's still an element of Certainly business to business sales and corporate sales that I wouldn't say frowns upon storytelling, but it's not, it's not the forefront of their mind. And, and you were sort of alluding to this before when you're looking at the demos that they're currently doing. And, and I look at demos, but also look at things like executive summaries with proposals and how many mm-hmm. times an organization will mention their own name or their own company or their own solution. And at the expense of the customer's name or what the benefit's going to be for that customer. And sometimes in executive summaries, for example, the ratio might be like 10 to 1. We mention our company name 10 times more than we mentioned the customer's name, which creates a great impression in the eyes of the customer, doesn't it?
1: Right. <laughs> you're like, right. Hang
0: on. You're making this all about your own product. I'm not interested in your product. What I want I'm is a solution my- to a problem. Exactly.
1: Exactly. No, I, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right Darren. And I think there is something to it culturally. Like I said, you know, it took me a while to understand how to sell to Americans because they were ready to be sold to right, right? in yeah. Canada. I had to be, I had to be your friend for six months before we could get into a sales conversation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think a, a better way to maybe look at it, Darren is, is just draw parallels and analogies. It doesn't have to be, you know, when we talk storytelling, you know, it doesn't have to be a Disney story. It doesn't have to be, you know, a historical story. Yeah, no, and I don't do that because I would feel uncomfortable. But again, case studies, I think if you look at a case study, so think about this, how if you looked at a case study, how would you put that into layman's terms for someone who doesn't work in your space? So if you're having dinner with your wife or your partner, how do you relay that case study to them? And I think that's a great way to look at it. I I think that's a great way of stepping back. But I get the cultural differences as well, because you know, if I get into a demo in America, they want, they're expecting discovery, or if we've had a discovery call already, they, you know, let's, let's just make sure we hit the right points. If you talk to a German company, pff, wait, small talk discovery, no, get right to it. So, so, you know, know your audience is obviously yeah. very important and I'm painting with a broad brush. um, And I learned it myself because, you know, 85% of my guests were American, probably, were British or, or UK, and then maybe 5% were uh, Australian or Southern hemisphere. So, you know, I, Australians would just walk right there. Like I'm not interested, mate. Um, (laughs) Especially we see a ton of those uh, Australian pensioners. There's a term, but they would come with their tags. They'd have their lanyard with their Australian pensioner. And they're like, Oh, I'm all right. I'm not going to try and do an accent. I'm fine. (laughs) I don't need what you're selling. I'm a pensioner. Thank you. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Not, not, not interested, dude. Well, they call them. Sometimes I call them here gray, gray nomads. Maybe I don't know.
1: <laughs> but but understanding who you're talking to is very different. And you know, a quick sidebar. I had this really interesting conversation with with someone who's originally from India who's in Canada, and he was talking about selling to Americans. I was trying to help him with that, and I said, you know, but think about the top 25 U.S. cities we sell into: Denver, Chicago what do you know about those cities? Like, what's mm-hmm. different about them? He goes, what do you mean? Yeah. I said, well, you know, you get someone in Dallas is going to be much different to speak to than someone from Seattle, right? Someone from Perth, much different than someone from Brisbane. Right. And he was like, well, wait a minute. I thought all Americans are the same. I said, what? <laughs> I said, no, I said, are all Indians the same? He goes, no, of course not. I said, no, of course not, <laughs> right? Because someone from Punjab is going to be totally different than someone who's Tamil, who's different than someone who's from Goa. I mean, we just talk about curries. And, and and you know, like an American thinks, curry's curry. It's butter chicken. Well, if I'm talking <laughs> to someone from the UK, it's like, well, what kind of curry are we having, right? And so where, where is this from? Oh, it's from Calcutta. I like that. That's interesting. <laughs> so knowing your audience and knowing who you're selling into, and if I'm an Australian and I'm selling, and I've I've talked to some Australians who sell to Americans, that's their ICP, you know, what do you know about those different cities? Right. And again, a little bit of rapport building, or at least having the bullets in the chamber to build rapport. Yeah. That was so critical in the B2C space. And again, Germans don't want that Americans are open to it. If you've gone through their LinkedIn, you find a few good things. And if you can, you know, they thought enough about their professional accreditations to put it in this LinkedIn. But one time I had a guy who was a certified youth hockey coach, ice hockey coach. Okay. So of course I brought that up in the first 30 seconds, 20 minutes. We talked about hockey, 5% super quick demo, 5% what's next steps.
0: Yep. There you go. Because it was relevant to him. Exactly. And that's right. the thing. So what you said really there was really important for anybody listening, make the, and i written down, make the story relevant. So there's no yep. no point in me talking about a story that has Australian characters, Australian vernacular, Uh, Australian landmarks and talking to somebody on the other side of the world who has never been to Australia and doesn't think it doesn't know where Australia is. It's completely missing the point. So essentially do your research and make it relevant, but also what I'm hearing also is the importance of being able to pivot and utilize whatever's in front of you at the time, still know your script, know your content, know your chunks and know what your outcome is, but have the flexibility to be able to move on the spot when you need to to make it more relevant to that particular audience.
1: And I'll go back to re-watching your presentations because if you do that, you'll be like, I could have pivoted there. Oh, I could have pivoted there, right? Or I should, or you know what? I watched his body language change. He went from like wide-eyed excited to squinting, right? (laughs) But I didn't pick up on it because I'm clicking around with a mouse as opposed to, and you should know those clicks. You should be able to look at the camera of who you're talking to and be clicking, You know, know those centimeter differences. That's it, um, but I think that's really important. I think a lot of people miss that,
0: and especially since COVID, where most—well, uh, not so much most—a lot of presentations are now done over Zoom, over Teams. Um, not as many face-to-face. Um, you've got to—you've got to be even more attentive to little, little voice, uh, voice inflections, eye movements, um, even change in color tone. Uh, you know, does this, does this person sit back? Does it lean forward? Do they put their Head on their hand like this Are they right. inquisitive just paying attention which means you've got to have the ground rule set up and have your bloody cameras on
1: listen it's like going on a date on a first date i need to get that person if i'm interested and that's my prospect i need to get that person engaged in me how yeah. do i get them excited about me right yeah and if you ask anyone who's out there dating i'm sure they'll tell you ask the prospect a lot of questions don't make it about you right
0: well, that's it, right? So it's it's such a it's such common sense when you listen to it and when you talk about it, and that is be interested in the other person rather than trying to be interesting to the other person. And this is a really key point around selling because there are so many so many salespeople out there that just want to sell and they want to convince the prospect that their product is the best suit for them, and they make it all about how good this product is. They're trying to be interesting. You don't, need to be tried to, you don't need to try to be interesting. If you try to be interested, and this is where the storytelling becomes critical, and you mentioned it before talking about ice hockey, you became interested in that person. All of a sudden, that person now says, wow, this person's different. They're asking me questions about what I like. That's different. I'm going to lean in now. And all of a sudden, you've opened the, the doors. That person's walked through. They've crossed the threshold to the new world. They're now the hero of their story and happy days.
1: Amen. Amen. I like how you put a bow on that, Darren. That was great. That was great.
0: That is it. That is it. So um, as we wrap up this particular, Hey, this has been a, we we didn't know where this was going to go, but it's been, it's, it's been a great, great conversation.
1: Well, you um, made my day. It was already a pretty good day.
0: <laughs> um. So really curious. So people listening to this, Wanted to know more about the great man Nick want to know about more more about demo stock um sorry
1: <laughs> demo stack um, I'll take some st- I'll take some stock and demo take
0: <laughs> so uh, but also learning a bit more about sales pitching and the power of storytelling what's what's the mm-hmm. best place for them to
1: connect with you Nick? So if if any of this content resonated on any level, just follow demo stack. That's okay. one call to action. That's it. One call to action, Darren. I'm trying to, you know, trying to, to keep to my process. Um, but as we talk about, we talk a lot about, about storytelling, about pre-sales, about sales engineering, but also kind of the other, the rest of the go to market. Cause that's where I lived in. And, you know, I, I think that the more you're all, if you're a sales leader, everything that touches sales is important. So we have all that on demo stack on our LinkedIn page. Um, just give us a follow and uh, we'll be dropping these short, punchy, actionable insight videos all day. That's all I do.
0: Awesome. So, best to do Demo Stack on LinkedIn or Demo Stack yeah. in terms of a website? Uh,
1: you can go to demostack.com. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, yeah. But Demo Stack, um, the LinkedIn page is where the content lives, okay. which is mostly what I do. So again, I'm I'm here to to bring to talk to great people like you, Darren. Because there's a few things I'm going to take from this conversation to turn into content that's relevant. I had a conversation with Darren, um, <laughs> so yeah. So that all lives on on Demo Stack on the LinkedIn. It's the best place place again. If you found value in this, that's where you want to be. The Demo Stack LinkedIn page.
0: Love it, love it, awesome. And uh, last final question is that if there was anything. If somebody's listening to this and thinking, I'm not quite sure about storytelling, is there one piece of advice? Is there, is there one thing you'd like to leave the listeners with that um, if they just focused on this one thing, it could make the difference?
1: Watch the tape of your sellers. Because <laughs> it doesn't happen, Darren, and I talk to sales leaders like, yeah, I, I you know I'm busy. Next quarter, watch what your people are saying, right? Yeah. You're only looking for wins or losses in there. But that, that, you know, that sausage is being made every day. So you got to go in and see how it's being made.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. So um, awesome advice. Hi, Matt. This has been a uh, phenomenal conversation. Thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. And um, I think we're going to have to do this again because I think there's more, more we can talk about.
1: I can't wait.
0: <laughs> awesome, Nick. Thanks very much, mate. And uh, we'll hopefully talk to you real soon. Good on you, mate. Absolutely. Cheers.